Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jedekin. Today, <laughs> we have a special guest. His name is Tom O'Neill. He is someone I've known for a very long time. Uh, and he has a book that's coming out today. Uh, it's called Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s. Tom, that's quite a title. (laughs) When I was telling the Uber driver on the way here, I got stuck. I go, it's Charles, chaos, Charles Manson. And I forget what comes next or what order. (laughs) Um, The cat is currently on, on Tom's shoulders. I wish I had a picture of this. She, I can take a picture. Uh, Yeah. I would love to upload it uh, to my Instagram. Rachel's cat is super horny for Tom. Yeah. It's like the best advertisement for the book i think it really is and i was hoping to get laid to kind of yeah the book. And this is, this the is it i might get and you have to tell me what my boundaries are with the cat there's no boundaries she loves it she I gives, she gives full, con- full consent she gets no gray area yeah. <laughs> it's a hard yes yes uh, you, you said your audience already knows about this cat. oh she oh, oh, yeah, yeah. So she's famous she's famous on the show and i'm not prone to doing superlative language but this is the coolest cat i've ever met or seen. oh she's kind of like a parrot right now she's she is and you can just throw her off if you need to I will only if i start getting a cramp Okay. 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 Romy, you behave because we do have a show to do. (laughs) (laughs) So, Tom, why don't you just give us a little background of the history of like writing this book, which I've kind of known you from the very first phase, which was when you were writing an article about the 30th anniversary of Manson for Premier Magazine. And then... You've known Tom that long? Yeah. Oh, no, be- well before that, even. Wow. <laughs> no, we know each other from New York, right? Yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. So... Yeah, when I first met you, you were we writing the article. There. I no, was in no. New York. But I lived in New York. Didn't I meet you? In, when did you you were visiting your family. Uh, oh. It was the summertime, I think. And you were visiting your mom who lived in well, Cape what May. When did you move to L.A.? 90, the end of 99. Yeah, full disclosure, she's been to my house, slept in my mother's bed. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You worked on this book with me for yeah. a certain amount of time. Desi. I did. I did transcription. Yeah. So, so I transcribed a lot of crazy. <laughs> in fact, she might hate me even more. Oh, my I God. I did research downtown library. I went I to know. like Forest Lawn Cemetery to yeah, look at look gravestones. At no, but this is all so up your alley. This well, is that's so... why when I met Tom, I was like, oh, tell me all about this Manson thing. Like yeah. that was instantly like a connection for me because I wanted to know everything about right. the article. Yeah. Then I moved to L.A. and he was started working on the he was still going on the, the research. Article, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, Hold on. I'm sorry. I'm just getting... Romy, you're too distracting for me. <laughs> I'm sorry. At some point, you start thinking this is more than just an article. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the official version is I got assigned a story by Premier Magazine, which no longer exists. Yeah. yeah. March 99, the day after my... Uh, I hate putting this out there, but my 40th birthday... <laughs> <laughs> so now everybody knows how ancient I am. Um, but the day after, I got the call, and I said, whoa, whoa, wait, why would I want to do a story about this case? I go, hasn't it been written to death? And, uh, and the pun was stupid and not intended. <laughs> and I said, I've never read the book. I was never interested in yeah. it. And my editor, who's a smart magazine woman, she said, number one, you'll find an angle. You always do, because I'd worked with her a long time. And she said, number two... Now that I've kind of planted the seed in your head, watch. You go out and you're going to hear his name referenced so many times in so many places. He's like a cultural icon, you know. 
you know, the metaphor for evil, the end of the 60s. And sure enough, I'm like, I, I'd read an article and I had no idea how frequently he was like, I started, uh, well, I read the book, Helter Skelter, and it's a good, fast, kind of scary read. Yeah, yeah. It's well written. And I believed every single word of it. Um, and then I thought I'd reach out to the author of Inspiriosi to talk to. And I thought it's anniversary time because it was a third. And there's always a lot of media, which is another reason I didn't want to fall into it. But so <laughs> I reached out to him and he like completely opened his home to me and said, come see me. And he was like the second or third interview I did in early April. So I went out to Pasadena, uh, met him and his wife, Gail, and their rare hairless cat named Sherlock because <laughs> Vince said the cat was always snooping around. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And uh, she made us, she get, you know, they're Italian. They gave me Italian, Italian American. They gave me Italian cookies and we had Italian coffees. They were very nice. And then Vince and I talked a few hours and we went to his favorite luncheonette in, in somewhere in the Valley and talked more. And then when we drove back to the house, he showed me, some of the more notorious scenes like where Linda Kasabian's wallet had been hidden to try to frame black people in a gas station, except they were wrong. It wasn't a black neighborhood. It was a white neighborhood. If you read the book, yeah. his book, or mine, yeah. you'll understand all that. And we went back to his house and then kept talking. It was like a six hour day. And, you know, it was great because I had a lot of admiration for somebody, but he, uh, he wasn't giving me anything fresh or new. You know, it was yeah, like right. I was just hearing him regurgitate everything he'd ever you said. You just before. read the book. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. at the end of the interview, I did the Hail Mary pass in journalism, which is, you know, because I love to get something fresh that I can put in this piece that's never been reported about this. I mean, I know you know the case better than anyone. If there's just something you can give me, it doesn't have to be for attribution. And he kind of thought for a second. He goes, All right, turn the recorder off. So I turned the tape off. And then he told me a story off the record and it later became on the record. Once he started suing me because he put it into the legal documents. And at that point, our lawyer said, this is no longer off the record. He's using this to make his claim against you. Right. And the story was that um, famously there was an audio tape taken from the loft at the house on Cielo drive when the police were searching for evidence after the, you know, in the day or two after the murders occurred and it was an audio tape hidden up there and they took it back. And the official story is they looked at it and it was just Sharon and Roman making love. And the police decided to put it back where they found it before Roman went back to get his belongings. They didn't want him to uh, get any more. I mean, he was still a suspect and they didn't want to upset him. Yeah. So what Vince told me that day was, in fact, the tape was Roman forcing Sharon to have sex with two men against her will. And uh, she was clearly not wanting to do it. And he was telling her she had to. And I said, did you actually see it? And he said, no, 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 I didn't see it. He goes, but, you know, the detectives who viewed it um, told me and I, I, you know, I trusted them. And that was important for a few reasons. The first reason was the obvious one, which was, well, then why do they put it back and forget about it? Because that indicates that their relationship was not healthy. Right. Right. Especially if the first suspect is always a husband. Yeah. And he's having two men rape his wife on camera. Uh, but more importantly, it's been said to me, and I missed this at the time, 
He said, I was the one, Vince, who told them to put the tape back in the loft so Roman would find it. Now, what I just read the book, but I didn't recognize that that was completely fucking up the timeline because Vince wasn't assigned to the case until November 18th. And in the book at that point, he writes the whole book up until November 18th about the crimes and the beginning of the investigation from the third person because he wasn't involved. And then he introduces himself in part two of the book. And he says, the first time I knew I was going to have anything to do with this case was November 18th when I was called into such and such a place. So now he was telling me, oh, no, he was involved a few days later with this critical piece of evidence that I'm the only one that he's ever shared this information with. So... I didn't understand the importance of him either lying to me that day about being the one who told him to put it back. Right. Because in the book, he has it in Helter Skelter. He doesn't say he told him to put it back. He said the police put it back. Or if he was telling me the truth, little things like that, if you study the genre of true crime, if there's law enforcement, you know, there's supposed to be an open book, chain of custody, evidence, everything, who investigated what, when. If he were involved in that early, that should have come out of the trial, he, especially since he was a prosecutor. He right. should have talked about it. So that was kind of like the first little crack on the wall where I started thinking, even without knowing the importance that Vince couldn't have done it, but just that this evidence was very different than what it said it was. So I started going down there, and then that led to all kinds of discoveries. And a lot of it was after I had begun chasing witnesses who had never testified back. I mean, who had never talked to the press back then. Critical prosecution witnesses. That, well, there wasn't a defense at the trial. But um, people who were really important to the case who hadn't talked mostly because they were either very famous and didn't want to be any more attached to it or because they were really scared. And once I got them through a lot of harassment, stalking to, to agree to talk to me, um, I started hearing a whole different scenario for what was going on at the house before the murders, what some of the victims were doing, what Terry Melch's role relationship right. was. And then I started thinking everything happened differently than they presented it in trial and the prosecution and one thing led to another, and all of a sudden, a three-month magazine assignment turned into 20 years. Wow. <laughs> I, I think you said something in the book where you were talking about Terry Melcher, um, and there was something in Helter Skelter that didn't line up. With- about, about when he moved out of the house. Right, and yeah. And that was also something moved. that you that kind of... That was the next thing. Yeah. <clears throat> that was like the next crack? Yeah, that was the next crack, and that was the one that I took to Melcher, Right when before I had he my died, big confrontation, yeah. and he threatened to throw my briefcase off. Oh my god! And Why don't you do you want to tell us like a little bit about the Terry Melcher aspect to your book? Like, yeah, I mean, if your readers don't know about it's, it's everything, is, it requires a lot of exposition. So tell me if I'm. I feel like too much. you don't. I don't feel like you have to do a ton because mm-hmm. most people who listen to the show are into the man. They always want right, us to so, do Manson stuff. Yeah. So I, I want like, a little yeah. exposition. A little. Exposition. I want a little. Sorry, yeah. Terry Melcher's kind of role in in the story is he and his girlfriend Candace Bergen. Right. You know, he's the son of Doris Day, the only child, and Candace Bergen was a daughter of um Edgar Bergen, Bergen the yeah. famous ventriloquist, and his wife was an actress too. Uh and they were Hollywood's golden kids. They grew up in Beverly Hills. They were both beautiful. Terry was actually a talented record producer and engineer and um Candace was, I guess, a pretty good actress and a very successful model at the time. 
So they rented this house on Cielo Drive from 67 to 60, first week of January, 68. And they had parties, you know, they were the occupants before Roman and Sharon moved in. And their world was mostly rock and roll, you know, the mamas and the papas, the Beach Boys, um, Paul Revere and the Raiders. And um, Terry had these encounters with Manson through Dennis Wilson, who had this famous brief friendship with them. And the official story is Manson wanted to be a recording star. Terry Melcher led him on, or in Manson's mind, he believed that Melcher wanted to record him, and then he didn't. He told him he was talented. Yeah, well, that's what Manson thought. I I never found that uh, Melcher did, but the whole story about Melcher's real relationship with Manson has been covered up forever until this book. Yeah. Um, So what happened at the time was um, when the murders happened and when they figured out that this group of hippies had done it, Mm -hmm. but they couldn't figure out why they went to that house because they believed that the victims were strangers. Right. Leosi's motive for the murders was kind of two pronged. Part of it was it was a helter skelter, which is something that Manson brainwashed his followers to believe was this oncoming race war where the blacks would rise up, kill all the whites. And during the race war, Manson promised his family that there was a hole in Death Valley like an endless tunnel and I guess it ended somewhere because there were rivers and juice and fruit trees and angels and unicorns and they were were going to live there until the war ended. And then after the war ended with the blacks um, winning, uh, the family would emerge and then subjugate the blacks again because (laughs) they're smarter than the blacks in Manson's mind. Right. And then they'd um, populate the world with the family offspring. Uh, and the house was chosen because at one level it represented successful Hollywood because Manson had been there a couple of times when Melcher was there and knew that um, it was like where all the swinging Hollywood people hung out. Yeah. Um, but also it represented Terry Melcher's, even though he didn't live there anymore, his rejection of Manson as a recording artist. And that's Bugliosi's two-pronged that's his, yeah, belief why yeah, it was that house. Yeah. yeah. So it was really important because it was difficult. I mean, it was a pretty easy case to prosecute except for Manson because he wasn't at the Tate house that night. And, and Bugliosi wanted to convict him of first-degree murder and conspiracy. So he had to be able to prove that Manson handpicked the killers, dispatched them to that particular location with orders to kill so he had to establish a motive. So he did this whole backstory with Melcher. So what you see in my book is my book takes apart that whole backstory oh. and raises questions about it because I found a lot of evidence in Bugliosi's own DA's files showing that um, Melcher's relationship actually was supposed to have ended before the murders happened and right. had no idea they did it. Where, in fact, Melcher was spending time with the family, going out to Death Valley, and, it, and I still haven't found out exact. This is the hard part about the book is what exactly was going on. All I can show is Vince covered up that whole important uh, period when Melcher was supposed to be ignorant that his family was loose for three months before getting arrested. And it, Hollywood was like in lockdown. People were terrified. And two or two of Bugliosi's um, main prosecution witnesses um told him in their interviews with him that they saw Melcher at the Spawn Ranch twice and Barker Ranch once. 
And Paul Watkins, one of them, said uh, that when Melcher was at Spawn Ranch, he was on his knee, he was on acid, on his knees, and begging Charlie for forgiveness. Really? Wow. And all I have are the no- the notes of the interview. Um, they're on my one of my uh, websites. You can read them. And that's what's so frustrating because the cops that took the interviews or, or, or Buliosi took most of them, and he wouldn't answer those questions. And the cops. When I found them, either they said they didn't remember, but I said, this is pretty important. You know, the guy who was a reason that the house was selected and hadn't supposed to have had anything to do with the killers for months was at the ranch where they lived a month or two after begging for forgiveness. And that wasn't public knowledge. No. Right. So I have a question. What what are the reasons or what do you think are the reasons that people would want to cover up this kind of information? Well, that's where we get into the speculation. And and this is the hardest part about writing the book was finding what I could corroborate and present as a different version of what happened, but without cooperation of of people who knew this either because they're dead or because they won't talk or because they're threatening to kill me. Um, (laughs) Then I can only say, all right, it happened differently, yeah, radically differently, but then I have to guess why. Right. So in the book, I don't. Right. I just say, I think, obviously, I try to be a little clever yeah. and yeah. maybe suggest or lead a little bit, but then I don't want to do it too much. Yeah. But I mean, the easiest answer to that was Terry Melcher was a very powerful figure in, in Beverly Hills of Beachwood. Right. Boys were too. These guys, kids had so much money. And, uh, well, it's not like a thing that's hard to believe. It's no. still this way now for oh, people yeah, yeah, who yeah, are yeah, rich yeah. and famous. Right, like, of course. I mean, it's a different legal system. Right. Uh, and the Manson family where, you know, they didn't have families anymore, really. I mean, a couple of their relatives came to the trials, but the kids disowned the parents before the parents even disowned them. Yeah. So they were really easy to prosecute and manipulate. And if it was just a matter of believing that they really did these murders, what difference does it make if we could help out some of these people who might be tainted um, by their, you know, Melcher didn't want the world to know how involved it was with this group. Right, right. Did you say that they didn't have a defense? They had defense attorneys. And at the end of the uh, prosecution's case, because, you know, the prosecution always goes first. They didn't present anything? The family members? Yeah, they they had a team, a, a unit, and Manson ordered the attorneys not to put up a defense. Now, isn't isn't it Vince's obligation as a prosecutor to give the defense any evidence that might help yes, them? Yeah, so that's one of the a few of the things <laughs> I found out. Listen, I'm like a little smart. Wait a minute. Yeah. So, <laughs> wait a minute. So let me get this straight. The Manson family they refused. To have a counsel, they refused. They to had a counsel. They had defense attorneys. They had the worst defense attorneys. Okay, in Los Angeles. but they didn't okay. present their side of the case. Basically, yeah. oh, they refused. Charles is like, don't do it. They, I'm, that's what I'm saying. They refused yeah. to testify or right. have anything presented, any evidence at all. It was like the defense yeah. rests like instantly. Yeah. Like, so when the prosecution rests, the prosecution always presents their yeah. evidence and witnesses, and then first, the defense goes. The defense turns. Right. So when. It was that time, they, uh, I think Irving Kinnerick, Charlie Manson's lawyer, stood up and says, defense rests, we won't be presenting any witnesses. And everyone was shocked, and it was Manson's decision. And, and the family members obviously just went, went along, along with, with what it. he yeah. said. Yeah, That's wild. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, 
I mean, isn't that prosecutorial misconduct, what he did, if he had evidence that oh, yeah. well, presented a different kind? Oh, yeah, well, I show the documents yeah. I have that contradict the narrative. And, uh-huh. you know, first I show them to Stephen Kay, who was Vince Bugliosi's co-prosecutor on the case. Right. And I told him first what I had in these documents, which changed the whole narrative. And he's like, no matter what you tell me, I will never believe that Terry Melcher saw those people except for from May, he saw them in May of 69. Those murders happened in August. He had not seen them since May. He wouldn't have gone anywhere near them. So anything you show me is not going to convince me. Then I gave him the documents and we were in his office and he slunk deeper. He's reading <laughs> slunk deeper and deeper in his chair. And I remember the sun was setting behind him in the San Gabriel Mountains. <laughs> Putting his head in his hand. Stop it. I swear to God, going like this, and he goes, I just, I don't know what to believe anymore. I thought I knew this. He did all their parole hearings, you know, after the convictions, when they first became eligible parole in like 76, 77, Vince was not in the DA's office. So Steve Kay did something like 50 or 60 parole hearings over 30 years before he retired. He knew the case better than anybody in the world. And he's looking at these documents. He said, I don't know what to believe anymore. I thought I knew this. Now I don't know. And, you know, he was the one who told me I might. He said, your options are you could take them to the head DA at the time, Steve Cooley. Like, what would he do with them? And he said, and I always get the language wrong, but he said he could call, um, it's a Latin term, which means that they got. Well, don't ask us. <laughs> yeah. We're like, oh. Uh. <laughs> the experts. Uh, I was like, habeas corpus. Habeas- yeah, I was going to say Excuse me, habeas corpus. Oh, is it habeas corpus? Habeas corpus. Oh, I, I'm so mad I didn't say it. That's always what happens to me is like someone will say, what's that thing? And I'll have it in my head and I'll say, no, don't say that out loud. You're yeah. an idiot. And then you were right. But if the, if the DA decided that, he would go to the judge and say, yeah. we requested these sentences are uh, dismissed. Right. We'd like to keep them in custody while we develop a whole new trial again, right. which would have been a nightmare. This was Can you even imagine the media circus that that would have been know, if the Mansons were put back well, on trial? It's happen maybe tomorrow when the book comes maybe. out. Maybe. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> Unfortunately, Manson won't be there to uh, be tried. No. Um, did you guys see the... I shouldn't say horrible because the guy who made it is a friend of mine. <laughs> Documentary on the funeral, Charlie Nelson. No, wait, a documentary on the funeral. It is really sick B level shit. Oh, I'm into it. Called Reels, I think. Oh, Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know about Reels. I want to watch it. Okay. Wait, what was? Who came to the funeral? They shot the corpse in the casket. The whole thing focuses on this kid that claims to be Charlie's grandson. Oh, right, right. And he organized a funeral, and he was um, ruled. The closest living relative, although it's still right. being disputed in the courts. Jesus. So he threw a funeral for his grandfather and uh, followers showed up. The ones that still are kind of. The true believers. Sandra Good. Oh, uh, the ones George who aren't Stinson, in jail. Star. Oh, Star went. Yeah, she went the to the funeral? Fiance. Yeah, I didn't know so she was invited. They had a, a, they had <laughs> and they showed him in his casket and, and he had to wear gloves because he'd been not properly refrigerated. 
What? They couldn't bury him until like two months after he died because there were all these court battles over the remains. Right, right, right. And, you know, it's hot there. And I guess every now and then. So his fingers were all gross. Well, yeah. So they had gloves on him, but everything looked horrible. And people were bending down and kissing the cat. Oh. This is on camera. I need to see this. I need to see this, too. the best part, I don't want to ruin it for you, is... um, they, you watch them go into the incinerator and the whole group goes outside and they kind of hug and cry a little bit and they're all freaks. And then they go, um, once they get the ashes, they go down to this river somewhere <laughs> that Charlie supposedly loved or would have loved. And they start <laughs> throwing the ashes and then... Somebody said this was an ancient tribal rite. They take the ashes and start covering them. No. Someone was just fucking with them. (laughs) Yeah, I think someone told them that. That's amazing. It's really. I'm disgusted. I know, I know. This sounds right (laughs) up my alley. These type of people. They're just horrible. Yeah. Um, it has nothing to do with the murder part too. Just the ashes, <laughs> like just the hippy dippy fucking yeah. bullshit ashes. Yeah. Um, one thing I saw in the book, I didn't get a chance to read the whole book, but there was something I had never really heard, and I think you talk about it in the book, and that is that Roman Polanski knew Manson possibly or had a connection to them well, at I, some point. Uh, no, no, I, I was exploring that angle. Oh, you were exploring never, it. Yeah, I never. There were people who were telling me that, but I. You yeah, never no, found evidence. Book, I, I never found evidence. Oh, but okay. But Polanski did some pretty strange things right after the murders when he came back. You know, he was polygraphed and he lied in the polygraph uh, about who he knew who were. It's, it's, this would take me 15 minutes to give you the background, but there's a guy named, we told Kazanowski. And he just flat out lied and said he'd never met him and didn't know him. It was kind of like Trump with Eugene Carroll. Right, yeah. Today. I'm like, why was he lying? You know, what, what, what was the point of that? I mean, what was he protecting? And you do see in the book that I found out that before he came back from the airport, he flew right back and he had this secret meeting at a Denny's parking lot with this guy, we told. And uh, before he went to the police and then uh, Polanski's handlers wouldn't let the police get to him. Until he had talked to, we told him this other guy, Bree Woodson, who's a figure in the book. Uh-huh. It gets a little murky, but uh, hopefully right. it all is comprehensible. Yeah. Another thing that I saw that you pointed out that sort of was like um, an omission by Vince Bugliosi mm-hmm. was that he uh, denied or didn't put into evidence um, Manson's connection to the parole officer, Roger Smith. Well, he didn't. His omission, that was more in the book. Okay. But what didn't make sense was um, at the trial, he, he, he makes a big case in the book saying the hardest thing was to show that uh, Manson had complete control over these people. So right. much so that he could order them to kill. And I needed evidence of that. I needed testimony. But the only people who could testify to that were family members and the ones who did all had criminal backgrounds and were testing, testifying for immunity because we needed somebody clean and it was impossible. And I'm thinking Manson's parole officer and David Smith and a bunch of, a bunch of these medical people in San Francisco in 67 when Manson was getting treatment and having his parole uh, meetings at the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, which is an important yeah. location. Yeah. Um, they all could have come down in their white jackets and talked about it because they actually wrote papers right. after about how Manson, how they watched him slowly gain more and more control and what methods he was using. I mean, it was like, 
They had all this insight into him and how he works. And they would have made, like, I talked to Kay about that. And Kay did, Stephen Kay did come onto the trial halfway through when Aaron Stovitz was fired. He said, I had no idea about any of that stuff. I would have, they would have been the first persons I put on the stand instead of Danny DiCarlo, you know, all these dirty bikers and stuff who would lie just to save their, you know, their asses. Yeah. It gets uh, lighter sentences. So, so why do you think that Vince didn't call those people in? Because I think that if he did, then it might have exposed some of the things that people might have been doing with Manson that <laughs> critical year. <laughs> Do you talk about that in your book? Yeah. So like all the MK Ultra and yeah. whatever. I know it's a long time ago. She transcribed all my days. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you did? The crazy interviews. Yeah. Wow. Hours and hours. Desi. Her and Jimmy. And what was the name of that other woman? Oh, Tanya. Tanya, yeah. yeah. That's so um, nice of you. So she so, knows more than is in the book. But you got, it was 50, 10, 15. Right. Uh, so, okay. So you get into that into the book. Yeah. Okay. Um, one other person I wanted to sort of have you talk about is that guy, Jules Bukieri, Bukieri, Bukieri. Yeah. What is, tell us who he is and like what the whole deal you had with him. Yeah. Jules Bukieri was one of the, you know, when you're writing a book, you can get colorful scenes when you're interviewing people who are insane. Yeah. And you have this really crazy episode with them. But when it's a book like mine, if it doesn't lead to anything important, you got to cut it out. Right. right. So Jules Bukieri was one of the more Colorful and frightening. <laughs> it really was a little frightening. Those are the stories we love on this show. <laughs> I have dozens of them. Dozens well, of I them. remember when I used to transcribe for you sometimes because I did know so much about the case. Every once in a while, I would be transcribing something, and I'd be like, "Why is he? <laughs> why is he going down this road? Like, uh, do you know what I mean? Like, I would be like editing you as it was happening, uh-huh. and it was interesting. But I was like, this doesn't have anything to do with anything. You like, mean me as the interviewer? Well, it. It was more like I felt like I knew what direction you were going at the time when I was researching. Then I take a detour, and it was like a detour, and I was like, "Tom, like." <laughs> I was just doing that to make sure you were keeping away. From yeah, Desi. Yeah. I mean, it was always interesting though. But you're kind of like, "Oh, this isn't going to fit into anything yeah. though." So I can imagine you had met a lot of weirdo people Jules like that. Cherry was uh, a developer, a, a rich kid. I forget who his parents were, like so many of these people in that era. He grew up in Beverly Hills with right. all this money. He was an heir. And then he made some really smart purchases. He bought, I think, the four corners of Robertson Boulevard and Santa Monica Boulevard. Oh, my God. He owned, and, and he had yeah. his own kind of Asian art antique store. And I think he was an actor, entertainment guy at one point, and then he had some kind of spiritual awakening, and he became a yogi. And they all he, have some weird. It's yeah. like you never know where their money comes from. <laughs> They're all just rich. <laughs> so I was told that he knew everything, all the secrets of the case, because he was really close to the victims. Right, he was friends with Jay Sebring, yeah, right? Yeah, and um, I called him. Like somebody probably told him that he should talk to me and he seemed fine. He said, come up to my house in Beverly Hills uh, at such and such a time. So I got up there and it was a weeknight at like nine o'clock. And I remember he came a little late. I was there early. I had to wait outside the gate cause you know, he had a, a gated thing and we go into the house and it's like a museum of fine Asian art, you know, just rugs, but there were also really scary swords <laughs> everywhere. So we're sitting down and he's sitting in a yoga position. Oh, and God. I can't remember if I had to call him his his yoga name, like Yogi oh, no. so and so or not. Oh. 
He's real spiritual and soft-spoken. There's candles and incense. So we start talking about the case, and he's like, well, you know, I don't really want to talk about the case. I want to talk about why you're so interested in it and why you're <laughs> <Let's>, looking. <laughs> he tried to pull a let's talk about you and your feelings. Thank you. Amazing. Yeah, exactly. And I said, hey, you know, not really, I, I prepared for this. It's 9 <laughs> o'clock at night. I usually don't do interviews. I love seeing your house, but I just want to ask you some questions about Sharon and Jay and you were there a lot right before everything. He goes, no, no, I don't want to talk about darkness. I want to talk about light. Oh, no. <laughs> That's I, when I leave. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember what triggered it. Maybe me just saying, oh, that's bullshit. You know, yeah. you know stuff. Don't play games with me. But all of a sudden he said to me, you better shut your fucking mouth and listen to what I have to say. You're not leaving this house until I'm done. And if you try to get up from that chair right now, I will slit your throat from ear to ear. <laughs> That's very un-yoga. <laughs> so I was like, you were like, uh, Namaste away from me. <laughs> <laughs> so he was, you know, those guys keep in good shape. Yeah. He was probably 70 years old. He had so, swords on his wall. <laughs> yeah, swords. He was a sword. Sword, sword guys are crazy. Yeah. Look, there's no way you have swords if you're sane. I know. It's like, I know. They don't go together. So, but I said, yeah, I thought he was, I knew he wasn't joking. I'm like, oh, Mr. Pacheri, please. Okay, <laughs> I'm so serious right now. And then he starts talking about all this ancient Hindu shit. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, Mr. Pacheri, I appreciate that that's your religion. He goes, well, what's your spiritual, what are your beliefs? What make, I go, that's not why I, what I'm here to talk about. If you don't want to talk about that, I'll just leave. He goes, you're not fucking leaving. I will fucking kill you. Oh. You think I have anything to lose at this point in my life? I will kill you. I will slit your throat from ear to ear. Who's your God, bitch? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm looking at him and he looks so intense and serious that I'm like, Okay, he might. Yeah. So I sat there for like a half hour. I actually, like, if I knew I was going to talk about this, I'd reread my, I didn't have it on tape, but I had very extensive notes. Yeah. Because there were all these bizarre little exchanges. And finally, he gave me permission to go. But he didn't walk me to the door. And it was one of those things where you, you turn your back on them and you're walking out of this castle with swords. And you're like, is there going to be like a spear coming out of the back of my neck? So I got, out, I got yeah. home and I called my editor the next day. It was still the magazine story. Oh. And I told it to her like, yeah. No, did you see E. Jean Carroll interviewed today? The woman who's. Yeah, yeah, it? yeah. She said that her reaction when he was raping her was she was laughing. And she said, I thought at the time that that disarmed men, if you just laugh at them, but it didn't it make sense because she said he was being really physical. She hit her head against the wall right. and she's laughing about it. it was, and then she said, well, maybe I was in shock. Well, the next day when I told my editor, I was laughing about it because I didn't really think my right. editor got so upset. She said, you have to go to the West Hollywood police station. <laughs> File a report, because this is like the third or fourth time something like this had happened. With that me. specific... No, just with you. you. I had a thing with John Barrymore. Jer- yeah, Barrymore's I'm going to ask you about father, that. Uh, <laughs> and lots of others. Oh, but, my great-grandpa so I, worked with him. <laughs> well, there's three. There's John Barrymore, one, two, Well, he three. worked with the really old one. No, this is yeah, Drew this Barrymore's is Drew father. Oh, okay, well, he worked with the great-grandfather. Yeah. 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 But I had, I had to go file a whole report. Oh, you did? Yeah, because yeah. Leslie's like, man, she's just like, have we it. need a record of it in case he does come to your house with a sword and behead you. 
mean, he'll go out like that. <laughs> he'll be, he's ready to die. I, mean, I have nothing left to lose. He's not in the book. Oh, he isn't. No, I never. That's I, I think what happened was whoever that interview was with asked me like they all want to know. What You're like, who wants to kill you? Book. Or there yeah. well, that is, who didn't end up in the book? Okay, didn't yeah, end yeah. Up in yeah, the yeah, book. yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I have so many of those stories, but in the end, I didn't get anything from them. Right. So it's just a funny anecdote. About Funny writing the scary. book. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, we can laugh now. I mean, that is, dead, right? Yeah, yeah, that is, yeah, <laughs> that is genuinely one of my favorite genres of people is the super spiritual on the outside person who will say some really fucked up evil shit yeah, yeah, all yeah. of a sudden and the mask comes off and you're right. like, whoa. Exactly well, that's sort of my yeah. childhood with like these hippies who would drink too much Coors Light and all of kind of become like brutally <laughs> vicious yeah. men. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Huh. Um, do you want to tell us a little with the Jew, the John Drew about? Barrymore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's Drew Barrymore's father yeah. and the son of John Barrymore. Right. So he was John. I think he was John Barrymore the third. So his grandfather was Lionel Barrymore. Yes. Remember? Mr. Uh, Potter. Mr. Potter. Yeah. And I, Ethel was either his grandmother or maybe John Barrymore's sister. You know, that was a whole dynasty. Of yeah. Barrymore's. It was all of those. It was yeah. a lot of them. So John the third was really handsome. John the second who was probably Lionel's son, was a pretty successful actor who I think had a pretty dark life, but nothing like John III's. Beauty should be good for you. And that's why we're excited to tell you about Beauty Counter. Beauty Counter is a clean makeup and skincare brand that started in 2013, disrupting the beauty industry by shedding a light on the need for stronger ingredient regulations in the personal care products that we use daily. Today, Beauty Counter is the leading clean beauty brand creating innovative and high-performing products that are safer and cleaner than even their like-minded competitors. So what do we mean by clean? Over 1,800 questionable ingredients are never used in Beauty Counter's formulations. They call this their never list. You can learn more at beautycounter.com, where you're also going to want to check out their incredible products. Best of all, if you're a new customer and you order through March 15th, you'll get free shipping on your order of $100 or more when you use the code HOLLYWOOD. Once again, to get free shipping on your order of $100 or more, go to beautycounter.com and use the code HOLLYWOOD. As most of us have found out the hard way, getting into debt is easy, getting out of it is hard, especially if your credit score isn't great. Thankfully, now there's Upstart.com, the revolutionary lending platform that knows you're more than just your credit score and offers smarter interest rates to help you pay off high-interest credit card debt. I know firsthand that there's nothing more frustrating than trying to pay something down and your payments are pretty much just paying off the interest. Upstart goes beyond the traditional credit score when assessing your credit worthiness. Upstart believes you're more than just your credit score. They believe in you. The best part? Once the loan is approved and accepted, most people get their funds the very next business day. Over 400,000 people have used Upstart to pay off credit cards or meet their financial goals. So free yourself from the burden of high-interest credit card debt by consolidating everything into one monthly payment with Upstart. See why Upstart is top-ranked in their category with a 4.9 out of 5 rating on Trustpilot and hurry to upstart.com slash Hollywood to find out how low your Upstart rate is. Checking your rate only takes a few minutes. That's upstart.com slash Hollywood. So John III at the time of the Tate murders was probably in his mid-20s. 
He'd done a couple films, some of those kind of B-level Christopher Jones movies. Right. But he had a, he had a promising career, but he was one of like a half dozen people who just who were close to the victims and just unraveled. They had nervous breakdowns. Right. I saw you mention that that there's a lot of people who had yeah, nervous I breakdowns have a list after. At home. Christopher Jones, Rudy Aldebelli. I mean, they never really recovered. They couldn't work again. Um, they were just I mean, I can understand that. If, yeah, it's a heavy. But it also yeah. made me wonder if it was because they knew more right. than they could share and they were haunted by that. And that's the thing I got from my interviews with Chris Jones when I interviewed him. But with John Barrymore, I wanted to talk to him and I knew that he was a recluse and hadn't you know, done anything. He, he quit working. He wandered the earth. He became like Howard Hughes. Yeah, he was like a Howard Hughes type. Yeah, yeah. he had... I had been told, and when I met him, he lived up to it. Long white hair, like down to his waist. Long white beard. Fingernails that were filthy and two inches long. Wow. He wore like pants with his paratrooper jacket, like like Michael Jackson brocade. But he was nuts. So I got to him through Drew's cousin. To get to him, I got in contact with one of her cousins who said... If I paid him, he would set up an interview with his uncle. And I said, I, I can't pay for interviews. I can take you out to dinner. Go pick a nice place. So he picks the most expensive sushi restaurant. <laughs> I was going to say in Los Angeles, maybe in the world. I can't remember what it was, but the bill was like five or $600. Oh, oh my God. And all I got was this. You go to this gated community in somewhere outside of Palm Desert, John will be staying with his niece or sister, not Drew, another relative. They're a big family. And he's been there since he got out of, he's in and out of psych wards or other groups he lives with. Right. Um, If you go over there, she's going to let you in. She's not telling him you're coming. (laughs) You have to bring him a nickel bag of pot. because A nickel bag? A nickel bag, yeah. I didn't even smoke pot. I couldn't remember if a nickel bag was a lot or a little. I had to buy it from Jeff Norman. (laughs) And I wish it were still illegal and the statute of limitations were still in effect so that he could be arrested. And that they had like execution laws for that. That'll be my next book on him. So I got a bag of pot, and at the appointed hour, I drove like two hours there, got through the gated community, pulled up in front of the house, had the bag of pot in my pocket, went to the door, and rang the bell, and I had been told he uh, he would answer, because she was supposed to make herself indisposed, so he'd have to answer. Right. But something had happened, and she answered. She goes, I'm so sorry. She goes, I had some women friends showed up here unexpectedly for coffee, and John just ran out of the house because he doesn't like being around people. <laughs> and I said, you mean people like, yeah, he won't be in proximity of anyone except for like me and a couple of family members. And I said, oh, so um, uh, by the time they left, I couldn't get him back in. I don't know where he is. She goes, but wait, come out with me in the back. <laughs> so we go out in the backyard. <clears throat> she starts going, John. Oh, no. I'm like, did he ascend to heaven? <laughs> she said, um, he's when he's frightened, he climbs these trees. <laughs> and he's 70 some years old. I think it was really high trees. She goes, you can't even see him because he's so high up in them. What? And he will not leave. What happened was the women left a few minutes before you came and he was probably on his way down, but it takes a long time to get down. And he saw your car pull up. <laughs> 
I'm a scared like, squirrel. I know. So I'm like, now what do I do? And she said, Take the nickel back. <laughs> well, I, was, she, I don't think she you could see it from all the way up there. So she said, Here's what you got to do. You've got to leave. <laughs> Go back outside the gates. Wait an hour, a half hour. <laughs> come back, but don't park in front of the house. Park like four doors away. And then creep up to the house and make it like such and such an o'clock and all be taking a shower. And because he does have to get medication, <laughs> and he will answer the door. It's like trying to get back a feral cat or right. something. Right. Like, 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 shaking a box of food. Yeah, just go away. Open a can of tuna. Put it on the front step. Walk so away. She, she said, uh, do that. I'm like, well, I came all the way over here. I might as well. I really wanted to lay my eyes on him. I was back. Right. Yeah. yeah. Me too. So uh, I did that. And I went back to the house. I rang the bell. And the door opens, and it's like looking at Howard Hughes in the last <laughs> days of his life. Just looked like a wild mountain man. No flesh on his body. He's all skin and bones. He goes, I know who you are. You've been sent by the, the dark forces. You want to add someone, not her, I don't know how. He said, you're here to talk to me about people whose names won't be mentioned here. People who were taken from us in 1969, you are to leave. I'm casting you out. <laughs> and I just took the pilot. I go, I have this for you. And he goes, are you a cop? <laughs> he goes, get in here quick. So he shuts the door and he grabs the pot. He smells it. He goes, I'll talk to you for a minute. <laughs> really didn't talk to me. I mean, I said, I want to know about Sharon and you were at the house. And I had all my facts. You were there like at this party when this incident happened. Right. And he goes, Sorry, cursing at me. Don't say those names. Don't ask about those incidents. What are you trying to do? You're sent here by the devil. And leave, leave. And he starts screaming at me. I got real frightened. And then I go, I'm not scared of you. You're just crazy. Oh. Oh. You're just a crazy old man who's pretending to be crazy. And I'm thinking... This yeah. guy could probably attack me too because yeah. he is that crazy. But it didn't. I got nothing, so it's not in the book. Oh damn! Yeah, I mean, yeah. it is a good story. Yeah, it's a really good story. Yeah. 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 Um, do you want to go more into your thing with Vincent? Like, what was the turning point with him where you he really started hating you? Like, what? What well, he exactly? Monitoring what I was. So doing. when you first go to that six-hour conversation. It seems like it's pretty good, right? He's yeah, giving yeah, you Italian yeah, yeah. cookies oh, yeah. and coffee. And, and was, we're talking about Vincent, the author of The Bully Bull- Bull- and yeah. the prosecutor, the Manson and prosecutor. The prosecutor. Yeah, so, yeah. And then I talked to him on the phone like once or twice a week. He was so accessible to me. I kept saying, why is he being so accessible? Yeah, so it was, a sus- it was suspicious a little bit. I think bit. he was concerned about the angle I was taking. Right. And he knew... I didn't know this at the time. He was checking on other people I told on my interview to see what I had... Ask them, right. them and yeah. what they had said. And then I found out he was calling people before I interviewed him. This took me months to find out. Oh, really? He was monitoring me, yeah. So then when I found out the stuff about Terry Melcher's very different relationship. First, I heard it from Rudy Aldabelli, who was very close. Right, and, and that's the owner of owner the CLO. Of the yeah. yeah, and he was very close to Terry and Sharon and Dennis and... He had never given an interview in... He is a real character. He's a real character. Yeah. Did you meet him? I'm I took probably, him out one night with all my friends. Oh, I didn't meet him. He offended Damn. everybody, yeah. Oh, he offended everybody? He was pretty offensive, yeah. Oh, man. He would grab I would have been, in the butts. And, oh, really? And, and in the front of the butts. and <laughs> The front he would butts. Get, <laughs> he would get drunk. and I mean, he would have been me too out of Hollywood. You know, yeah, he was for fearless, sure. Yeah. But... Um, 
Rudy was the one who first ta- told me stuff about everything being different than Vince. Why do you think he talked to you when he didn't talk to anyone else? At first, he wanted to sleep with the Tom stuff, I think. You know, he was an old gay man. Oh, right. He, and I didn't lead him on, but I knew he liked me and my attention. Yeah. And the deal was I would take him out to dinner. So it was like having this little relationship for him. I was like his walker. Yeah, you were but like a social. Yeah, so but, and he would sh- share information, but it, it became like this two or three year extended feudal. I mean, he gave me stuff, but he always held back. And what it involved was, I had to go from Venice to Van Nuys. He lived in a garage. I mean, he lived in the most beautiful house in Hollywood, and he lost all his money. The house was sold, the Cielo Drive house. And he lived in a converted garage in, like, a gangbanger neighborhood. And he had, like, ten feral cats that he took care of. And Oh, right. I read that in the book, that chapter, I think. With the cats. Oh, you guys drove by the Cielo house where it had had been rebuilt, and he had a a fit. fit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, He knew shit, too. But once he told... Oh, so I'd have to go pick him up in Van Nuys. Take him back to a fancy restaurant in West Hollywood or Beverly Hills. He'd order the most expensive things on the menu, three or four martinis. Once he had one martini, he'd start harassing all the white people. Yeah, you come over here, cutie. I want to fucking lick your nipples. Jesus Christ. In Beverly Hills. Yeah, that kind in of Beverly thing. Beverly Hills? I know. Oh, my God. But they knew him because he was a legend, and they kind of just shrugged it off. Right. Sometimes right. they'd come to me and say, can, it's time can for you, Rudy yeah. to go home. Cut him off. But then I'd, have to take, <laughs> then I'd have to take him to a bar in West Hollywood. Then I'd have to take him on the way back to Van Nuys to the Vaughn's what? supermarket. <laughs> I gotta get some Triscuits. Wait, how old is this guy? He was like, when I met him in 99, I think he was 72, 73. Oh, wow. Uh, and then it would be like a six, eight hour night. And I'd have to go all the way back to Van Nuys and try to get like in Vons, he would be there two hours. Really? Just to piss me off, he'd spend hours deciding between one brand of cornflakes or another. <laughs> That's Incredible. Because he was lonely and he wanted to right, yeah, right. And then I get him back there. He'd want me to go in and pet the cats. Um, <laughs> but he would show me all these incredible pictures right. of the stars at the house that he had and artwork that people had given him. He, you know, he was a manager of Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. Right. Um, so he did have good information. He had good yeah. information, yeah. And then when I was able to collaborate it in documents of the DA's files to show that everything Rudy was telling me was true and and knew it and hid it and kept it from the defense. Then I went to Terry with it. And then we found out Terry told um, Rudy that uh, he had called Vince and he said, Vince O'Neill's asking all these questions. He's not supposed to know any of this stuff. You're supposed to take care of all that. Really? Yeah. And so there, you know, once I was finding out that stuff, um, I knew it went a lot deeper and right. Cause it's like, it's always like when they're covering it up, it's yeah. like, well, why are you covering it up? Yeah. Or if why are you hiding yeah, things? Yeah, like yeah. that's when it becomes like yeah. a conspiracy or something's then, going on between people. And my last contact with Vince in that first year was I, I had pulled back and stopped calling him or talking to him because I didn't want, I wanted to wait until I had all my ducks in a row. But you knew at some point not to tell him what you were doing. Well, I knew he was figuring out a lot of it. Yeah. But uh, once he knew I wasn't calling him, I could tell he was getting disturbed. Right. And I was hearing it from other people. And then finally, after like three or four months, he left me a message in October on my answering machine. I heard that, I think. 
He probably did. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he said he wanted to talk to me. And, wait, he left really. I've heard a bunch of. Yeah, them. the messages <laughs> six years later were the cursing. Oh, and those the were the threats. cursing ones. Okay, yeah. yeah, I heard those. This one was when he was still trying to figure out what I was doing. And right. He was still frightened, and so he was more friendly. So he said to me, I, "I've heard that you know you're asking people about certain things I did at the trial that you might not understand as a lay person. So I just want to be assured that." you'll give me the opportunity to explain anything that, you know, doesn't make sense to you because I'm the most honest prosecutor that lived or something. That's such a sociopath. Oh, you like, no I hope you give me the chance to tell you my side of the story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, it's like they don't want to not be able to tell or charm you into thinking, do you know what I mean? Like yeah. they want that chance to charm you again. Yeah. Like yeah. it's creepy. So, I mean, but how did it really escalate? Like, was there a particular, like, inciting incident that, like, made him go off the, le- the edge? Yeah, well, no. So what happened was after that call, I called him back and I said, Vince, of course, I'm going to give you your opportunity. Literally, it was still a magazine story. Yeah. And I was only, like, eight months into it. Right. And I was hoping to have it done, like, any month. So I said, it'll probably be a couple more months. I'll call you. But then it stretched into six more years. The magazine. Wow. Yeah. I had a, uh, the editor in chief got fired and the new guy said he wanted the story right away. I wouldn't give it to him because it wasn't finished. Yeah. And uh, I got a, a book agent and we got a, a resolution that I'm not allowed to talk about where we took care of each other so I could walk away with the story, but I have to give something that I don't know how I'm ever going to get it to give it to him. <laughs> I don't have it, you know, yeah. a lot more, but anyway, they'll come around. I'm sure looking for me. Hopefully they're not listening to this. So then I kept reporting and then I got a book deal. And in 2006, I finally reached out to Vince and I, I knew he'd been monitoring me all those years. Right. People told me that he would call them and ask them what I'm asking. Even though the premiere story never came out. Yeah. yeah. Then he thought that I had lied, that, that the premiere story was a, a false pretense from the beginning, that I was always planning on doing a book that was going right. to attack him. Oh, God. So, um, then, so once he knew the book was coming, that's when he sort of really freaked. Well, he didn't. He still didn't approach me again. But uh-huh. then finally, in, I wanted to have my big confrontation with him before I sold the book because I wanted it in the book proposal. Right. And my agent didn't want me to do it. And he was right. He said, Vince is too powerful. You know, once you put your cards on the table and he sees what you really have, if we don't have a book deal yet, he's going to go to every publisher and, you know, make them terrified to have a deal with, with you, you because he's the established author and an right, attorney. Right, and he had numerous successful yeah, true crime yeah, books. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I listened to my agent and did it. As soon as we got the book deal, I said, okay, it's time to do it. So I call him like two or three times at his home and in his office, which isn't an office. It's an answering service. He doesn't have an office. He wants people to think he has an office. <laughs> And I said, it's Tom O'Neill. I'm sure. I hope you remember me. We, you know, met and had a lovely day in April. Yeah. And I talked to you for six months. And the last time was October. Long story short, the magazine is now, article is now a book. I'd love to come sit down with you. He didn't call me back. And then I finally called him at home at night. He answered the phone and for five minutes pretended not to know who I was. Stop. Tom who? Oh. Oh. I've left you three or four messages. That you I have your fucking heard. number. You've been stalking me. <laughs> and I explained yeah. who I was in our history. And I know that you've been getting information. Oh, you're the, oh, you know, you, this is what he said. You were such a wonderful guy. I really thought the highest of you until I learned. 
true. And I'm like, why? You're like, likewise. <laughs> no, really. I should have. He said, Tom, you really pulled one on me. I thought you were the greatest guy. He goes, but the things I heard about you, the horrible, disgusting, criminal things that you've done. Oh, my I'm like, God. What? He goes, I go, what? So, so I can defend myself. He goes, I can't tell you. You know, these people told me this in confidence. I go, so what does this mean? He goes, so it means I'm not going to ever talk to you again. I can't talk to someone who's done the things you've done. So he's trying to make you all paranoid and yeah. he got, he gaslighted you. He did. <laughs> he says to me, he's, and I have all this on tape. He says to me, um, he says, I, I would never talk to you. And I, I went around. And I said, you have to tell me who told you this. You're saying one person. No, two, two different sources. I go, if you don't tell me who they are, you don't have to tell me who they are. Tell me what they said. So yeah. I, can, yeah. you know, I go, Vince, I make a lot of enemies doing this, as you well know, because you, and people could just say anything. Right. You're, you're going to shut me down. He goes, I'm sorry, Tom. That's it. Goodbye. Good luck with your book. So I hang up the phone. I go, this isn't going to be the end of this. <laughs> <laughs> I sit by the phone and maybe five, ten minutes later my phone rings. Hey Tom, it's Vince. Oh my god. He goes, That conversation we just had, we need to have it again. I said, What? He said, I didn't have a witness. Oh. It was you and me, and you're gonna misrepresent what we said. I go, it's gonna be pretty hard to misrepresent that because it was so crazy, Vince. Yeah. And he said, I want my wife Gail to get on the phone and we're gonna <laughs> pretend like you're calling me all over again. <laughs> I'm like, you mean play out? He goes, well, just, you know, remember the first thing you asked me? Just start all over. <laughs> what? It's insane. And I go, Vince, well. Is he going to pretend not to know you again? Know, <laughs> Who are you? Who are you again? That would be so bad shit. So I said to Vince, I said, well, I'm alone in my bungalow in Venice. I don't have a wife to get on the other line. I said, I'm going to tape record it. He goes, oh, that's all right. I said, okay. He goes, honey, it's time. And I hear this, uh. <laughs> And then the phone clicks. Gail, are you on? Yes, Vince. Oh. And Vince goes, you ready, Tom? I go, yeah. All right, my recorder's on. He goes, okay, so here we go. And I thought, I'm going to make him do it. He goes, now, Tom, you're supposed to say. <laughs> oh, I go, oh, you mean you want me to? Uh, so I called you. We'll just say, Vince, are you? I go, we skipped the part where you don't remember me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was absurd. So basically he says, you asked me for an interview and I said I really liked you and that I wouldn't do it because of some horrible stuff. I said, no, you said horrible criminal stuff. I did? Okay, yeah, so horrible criminal <laughs> stuff. And then you said, and I said, and then he's correcting me. And we're just. Would this tape hold up in a court of law? Yeah. <laughs> like, what is like, his point doing? Every this? five or ten minutes he's going, it lasted like a half hour. He goes, Gail, are you still there? And she's like, yes, Vince. You know, she hated this and you still have this tape? Yeah, incredible. Yeah, I want to hear it. <laughs> I desperately want to hear it. Uh, I want to put it up on my website, um, but I'm getting attacked by his relatives. You should right put now. it on iTunes. It'll be like the number one song. <laughs> we should get a remix. <laughs> should. So at yes, the end of the call, where he's satisfied, he says, "So now you can't." Well, I said I can actually, if I want to, misrepresent the other call, right? And, and right. whatever I have, all I want to do is interview you, Vince. I think you're going to change your mind. He goes, I'm not changing my mind. I hung up the phone. I thought, all right, I'm going to hear from him yeah. again. It's not going to be tonight. It was about six days. He calls me up. 
You know, I've been thinking. He goes, Gail said you sounded like a nice boy with good intentions. I do not want to meet with you again because of those horrible things. But Gail told me I should put that aside. You can come to my house and we'll do an interview. Now, I didn't want to go to his house because at that point I was a little scared of him because I've heard. I, you see in the book, I uncovered other stuff he did to people that includes yeah. violence and horrible things. Actual place. But at that point, I was relieved. So we set up an appointment at the house. I went back to the house. And that's kind of the climax of everything because I laid out six, at that point, six years of research, seven years on his table. I don't know how long you want me to talk about this, but it was just as bizarre as the phone call story that day. I mean, it went from, first of all, Yale had to be there as a witness because he was going to give an opening statement. He said, I'm treating this as a trial. <laughs> I, I want to know what Gail's demeanor is during this. Was so she- he's like, Gail is going to be my witness. And I said again, I go, well, I need to turn on my recorder. She goes, not for the opening statement. I go, you mean literally an opening statement? It's like goes, you're in a world with insane people, but yeah. you have to act like it's yeah, normal. Yeah, exactly. or something. Like- so we're in the kitchen and Gail's leaning against the, like, the <laughs> counter like with her hands crossed. Like, when is this going to end? Gail is my hero. I know. I love Gail. <laughs> <laughs> And Vince says, okay. And he has three legal pads of notes, like 10 books, <laughs> some that he's written and some that others written. They're all tagged so he can read excerpts about other writers writing about what a brilliant attorney he is and no. how fair he is. Jesus. And then, and then, so he makes his opening case against me. It's his opening case about that he's great. It's about <laughs> like, how he's great. Because he's like, like he's on trial and he's defending himself. Yeah, I, haven't, <laughs> I haven't presented my case, so he doesn't. He only knows secondhand. He doesn't really know what I'm going to ask. Right, him about. right, right. Did you say, Vince? I haven't had a chance to prepare my own. I know. Defense. Yeah. yeah. So then, at the end, well, no, in like the first five minutes, he said, "I'm not allowed to record it." And I said, "That's not fair because you have been, you have your wife yeah. as a witness." He goes, you can turn your recorders on after. These are my rules. It's my house. I'm like, well, that's why I wanted to do it in a place. <laughs> so anyway, five minutes in, I go, that's because he was so fucking crazy. And he constantly is referring him to, to himself in the third person, yes, which I love. Yeah. So I said, Vince, can I just please take notes? It's so good. I need notes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you can take notes. So I have really good notes on it. When the end of the thing ended, he goes, honey. Thank you. You did a wonderful job. He goes, she has a headache, so I hope you don't mind. She's going to bed. I wonder why. And then it was four and a half. It was almost six hours again of screaming and threatening. And he had two recorders. I had two recorders. This is a separate day. This was... Yeah, it was only the second time he and I ever sat down. The first one was 99, and yeah. it was that day after the opening argument. <laughs> and then we're at his kitchen table, and he, I actually had just as many files and books as he did. Oh, so we're this like, is the same day as the but opening argument. But Gail has gone to sleep now. So after okay. the opening act, she went up to lay down because she had a headache. Yeah. <laughs> Can you even imagine hearing <laughs> his voice? Like, that must have just been She's like, like I just want to watch like, Allie I hear his opening. <laughs> <laughs> I hear his opening statements every fucking day. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, yeah, I'll keep this point. Okay. He had two recorders. I had two recorders. He went off the record probably every two minutes, which is always a sign of somebody who's only covering shit up. Right, right. And he, we were getting so mixed up because he would like push his hand and his recorder would become mine and I wouldn't turn it off. (laughs) And then I turn off, Vince, you left yours on. Oh shit. And then I'm like, no, I was joking. It's still off. And you know, he got so confused. I was trying to rattle him. 
But he was like, I mean, when the recorders were off, he goes, I will fucking hurt you. Like, you have never been fucking hurt in your life. And I'm like, is that metaphorical? Or is that like literal? He goes, you're going to find out. And then he repeated this other, he had these mantras. I have never hurt anyone in the first instance. But when I hurt someone who's hurt me in the first instance, they know it. In other words, he only goes after people in attacks in defense. Right. So... It was nuts. It was insane. Everything is on tape with a million interruptions. And then I I took notes. At the end of it, I had the headache. And he was not going to finish. It's like 6 o'clock at night at this point. And I I go, it is February, so it's dark outside. I go, Vince, my head feels like it's going to explode. You've been screaming and yelling at me for four hours. You haven't answered a single question. You're deflecting. I'm not getting anything. I'm going home. I can't take this anymore. So he walks me out to the house, out to the car, and we're walking down the the path to my car, and he grabs me by the arm. And he's a strong little guy, too, because he's like this champion tennis player, even as an old guy. Played with Hefner and Larry King all the time. Those are <laughs> Gross. Yeah. He kept telling me when he, he changed the interview time a couple times, he would say, you know, I'm invited to a Super Bowl party at King's. I'd like, King who? Kong? He's like, that is, that is. I'm like, I'm supposed to know who these seniors are. I'm friends with all the Hollywood seniors. I know. So he walks me out to the car and he grabs me by the arm. And he goes, you know, a blurb from Fitzpuliosi on the cover of your book will sell. That will increase your book sales tenfold. A blurb, Fitzpuliosi on the cover. I don't give blurbs for just anyone. I go, well, you're sure not going to give one for me. You just asked me not to write half of what I'm writing. He goes, no, what I'm telling you is don't write it. You get the blurb. I go, Oh, quid pro quo. No, no quid pro quo. I'm saying you write the honest book. I said, I know the honest book. He goes, think about a blur from from Vince Bugliosi. I go, Vince, you're getting really desperate now. And he was. Then we get to the car, and he grabs my arm again. He goes, all right, I'm going to tell you something. I know that I have some mental illness problems. He, goes, he said, Gail's been trying to get me in therapy forever. And he says, I know I'm obsessive and I'm high-wired, but you know I'm right and you know you're wrong and you shouldn't be doing this. I'm like, now are you trying to get me to be sympathetic for you? He goes, no, I'm just trying to explain my behavior. I mean, Don't you want me to go to therapy for Gail? Poor guy is so manipulative. My God. Yeah, yeah. So I laughed and I drove home to Venice. Guess what? I get home and there's like three messages on my machine (laughs) phone. So we talked all night. All the next day, and he would alternatively sound like he's about to cry, saying, you know, you're ruining my legacy. You're going to destroy my family, everything. And then he'd say, and if you fucking do that, I will fucking you for the rest of your life. Every penny you make will be in Vince Bugliosi's bank account. Is that what you want? It's crazy. It's so crazy. Um, I mean, you kind of don't have a leg to stand on that you don't really care when you talk to someone for 24 hours straight on the phone, right? And call them three times as they're on the way back home (laughs) from your house. Incredible. So we talked for about two weeks. And uh, he he kept saying, the new refrains were, if I were in your shoes, Tom, if you were in my shoes, no, if I were in your shoes, Tom, I would say, why persecute a man like this? (laughs) 
this is so absurd. Whenever they bring out the persecution yeah. complex, yeah. I yeah. love how like how many stages of denial he's going through. Like, right, just like all these things. Like, totally. how about try this one? I mean, it's such a sociopathic the move. The first letter he wrote to Penguin Press threatening a lawsuit was thirty-four pages single space with <gasps> fifty pages of exhibits, and in the thirty-four pages of single single space, the common refrains that appear on every single page are if if you were in my shoe or if I were in your <laughs> shoes and he's telling this to the publisher you would never want a book like this to represent your company if you were if I were now I can't even get it straight whose shoes were which shoes <laughs> but then he would say you know about the man in the mirror you have to wake up and look at the man in the mirror like, is he listening to too much Michael Jackson or something <laughs> Change. Get rid of this book deal. So I posted on my site for the book the documents. He wrote four letters in total, more than 150 pages over four years. And I just put the last page of each of the last three letters. One letter is handwritten, and you really can't. It's really hard to read. So I did the three that are typed. And like the first one has in my shoes three or four times on one page. Oh my God. And in the mirror, it's the really crazy. I also posted the letter, I don't know if you saw it, that he uh, sent to the milkman that he was stalking in 1968. Wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> wait, tell the story because I remember this story. Yeah. It's pretty funny. Before he became famous, he powerful. stalked the milkman. Because he thought the milkman. That's how long ago it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He decided that the milkman was the father of his firstborn child, Vincent Bugliosi Jr. <laughs> so the milkman left the route right when Gail realized she was suddenly pregnant. <laughs> and for whatever reason, Vince decided that because of the timing, I have a feeling it had to be something else, too. But maybe I'm just happy Gail fucked the milkman. <laughs> maybe she was a little sphinx. But Vince started writing him letters. If you were in my shoes, <laughs> would really, you fuck my wife? No, it's in the letter. He wrote in shoes. No, so he, he started writing letters to the milkman saying he, he was one of his former customers. He wasn't going to tell him who, but he's in the legal profession. And if... He wouldn't agree to turn over his finance or his records from his hours at the company and take a blood test. <laughs> um, he was going to make his life miserable for the rest of his life. So he was following the guy to work, sending him oh letters. They had to take their kids. They had two little kids at the school. They couldn't let them go on the buses. They were terrified of them. And I have some of the letters that he sent to them. The milkman's children were terrified of Vince? No, well, the parents were terrified that he was going to abduct the kids because they would see him in his car outside. Oh his house. He wasn't famous yet. And they right. didn't know who he was. Right, right. And he couldn't answer the letters. Vince would say, I'll be out in my car or meet me here. I want your records. Or Give I me called, your blood. And he would say, <laughs> I, called Arden, I called Arden and they said that you're not cooperating, that you're not giving me permission to see <laughs> this stuff. So finally, he, he lost his mind and he made Gail go to the door of the house. I have all the depositions from the civil case. And Gail goes up to the door and she goes, I am so sorry to do this. It's obvious that I'm married to a cycle. I'm married to someone who's mentally ill. I can't get him to go to therapy. Can you please just take a blood test so he'll know? And they oh said, How God. dare you? <laughs> and the woman said, I felt sorry for her. I said, Can't you just leave him? If this man doesn't trust you enough. 
So that's a woke opinion in like the late in the sixties. Sixty-eight. Yeah. It wasn't enough. Yeah. Vince was still stalking them. <clears throat> so the milk milkman, who was not a milkman anymore, he did something else. He was at another company. He said, "Come to meet me, and I'll give you the." Blood, the results of my blood test. So Vince shows up and they still don't know who he is. And he had another guy tail him home when he left the building in the car. Okay. Yeah. And get all the information, see where he went. And the guy, they had a private detective found out he was in the DA's office and they went to, he went to his own attorney's after this and they all converged there and confronted him and his own attorneys admitted that Vince had been doing this all that time and they had a meeting and they said we're sorry he's obsessed about this we don't believe him Gail Bulliosi was at the meeting and Vince agreed to pay them $100 and never bother them again (laughs) $100 and they wouldn't take the money so he stopped and that was 68 a year later he became famous on the Tate LaBianca trial (laughs) And then three years later, he ran for attorney general, or district attorney of Los Angeles. And when the milkman and his wife saw that he was going to try to have the highest, most powerful oh my enforcement God. job in Los Angeles, they decided to go public. Yes. And had a press conference. Oh. So you know what Vince did? What? He held his own press conference <laughs> and said, here's what happened. The milkman stole, I believe, $300 from my kitchen table when he delivered the milk one day in 1965. And what Vince was so, st- I mean, he's a brilliant prosecutor, yeah. but what he didn't understand was his stalking was in 68. Right. For that kind of crime, the three-year statute, and that was the first thing their attorney said. So he's conducting his own investigation. You know, yeah. the attorneys for the milkman went to the local police and said, did he ever report this and ask you to, but no, no record. Right. And had he found out that the guy stole $300 from Vince and Gail's table, he couldn't do anything about it in 68 because for that crime, the statute right, had run yeah. out. It was insane. But he told that to the media and the police. <laughs> And that was important because I'm saying he suborns perjury and fabricates evidence in the in the Tate trial. And people are like, "Oh no, no, he he's an that. honorable." Yeah. So I have to show that. And that's pretty brazen. That's easily debunked. That, oh, it was so debunked. Yes, yeah, so like, he ended up paying this huge settlement. Then in the, and he lost the race because it all went public. Right. And he paid them. I think what was a lot then, like twenty thousand. Wow. And they. Um, he only paid them in cash. He wouldn't let it come from his bank account. He, used th- he didn't want any of it traced back to them. They had to sign a non-disclosure saying they would never reveal anything. And they were just going to walk away and not reveal anything until 1974 when Vince almost killed his mistress. <gasps> what? Yeah, that's all. You see, if you get to the end of the book, Virginia Cardwell was a woman he was fucking in 74. And uh, she got pregnant. And he wanted her to have an abortion and she was Catholic and she wouldn't have an abortion. So he gave her $200, referred her to an abortionist. And I think he had a good relationship with the abortionist because Vince was famous for lots and lots of affairs. And she lied to him and said that she'd had the abortion. And he called the doctor and I guess... Because it was Vince, the doctor did what they're not supposed to do and right. said, no, no, she never came in. I never treated her. So Vince went to her apartment and beat the whole <gasps> out of her, black and blue. And she believed she miscarried during the beating. Oh, wow. So um, he left and she went to the Santa Monica Police Department, reported it. 
and they took photographs of her. I, I have the photographs of her blocking wow. her face. And then the next day, that night, you know, they have um, the crime reporters. They have a, a tape or something with every single crime that comes in, the, and they check it. Right, to and see if there's saw, anything. Yeah. you know, a charge of um, battery and, and assault against the prosecutor who won the case. So the next day, it was in all the papers. <gasps> so you know what Vince does? What? He goes back to Virginia's apartment in Santa Monica with his secretary and a typewriter and uh, beats her up. Well, beats her up and then comforts her in front of the secretary and basically holds her hostage in her own home for three or four hours until she agrees to call the department and say she's coming in and she's going to admit that she filed a, a false report. This is a story Vince concocted. He had given her advice once on a child support issue with her prior husband and charged her $200 and... She was disputing the fee, and she thought that if she she was going to blackmail him and pretend they had an affair, but Vince said, I never met her face-to-face. I only talked to her on the phone. She made this whole story up. So she agreed to do that, and they the secretary brought the typewriter, so they typed up a bill, a bill and backdated it, and she signed it, and that was the evidence that... Damn. He's sick. He's <clears throat> yeah. sick. So then um, Vince and... Then said, so call the um, call the department, the police that you know you gave the report to. And she said she lived like right down the street. And she said, so I'll be up in like ten minutes. I said, no, no, we're sending you a car. And Vince is going, no, 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 no. <laughs> and she said, no, no, no cars. I want to walk. And I interviewed the cops that came. You know, they knew that something was funny. Yeah. They weren't going to let her walk. So sure enough. They say, okay, come up when you can. They went right to the house. Vince was at the door. His his law partner, Robert Steinberg, a huge sleep bag, had showed up, and they wouldn't let the cops into the house. The cops had to get the captain to come down. They went into the house, brought her back. She still said I, she was terrified of him, so she said, I made the whole thing up. Right there, Vince's lie that he never met her before. Right. She's in the house, and I have the cops telling me that and on the record taped interview, um, you know, some years later. So um, the next day, all the papers reported that the, there was this financial dispute and Virginia Cardwell was desperate and couldn't afford to pay the $200 uh, to Vince. So she was withdrawing it and she was getting arrested. And Vince told her, you'll get arrested, but I'll make it go away. We're filing a false report. He did. And then about a week later, oh, I'm sorry, about a week later, um, her brother found out what had happened. He didn't live in the same state, but she told him or something. He got her an attorney and they went right back to the papers. And Vince was just starting a campaign for attorney general of the state. Oh my God. So a bunch of attorneys who hated Vince and didn't want him to be attorney general got, got the milkman and the, and the, uh, and the mistress and the mistress together and said, you need to speak out. And the milkman's like, well, we signed these NDAs. Yeah. And they said, he's never going to try to get that money because the depositions are sealed in which right. he admitted everything. So you have no, he's not, he's not going to sue you. So sure enough, they went public. Vince lost the campaign. He accused the mistress. He even told the police this, you know, that she had lied about everything, never met her. I mean, he's a, a liar. Yeah. And he was using that tactic with me to scare me away. What I found, oh, I didn't tell you what the terrible thing was. Oh, right. So what happened was Rudy and I had a falling out. <laughs> 
because he was so <laughs> drunk and crazy. And it was weird. This is separate. You're not going to want it in here. Rudy became really good friends with Mulligan. When I fell out with Mulligan. Oh, hell. Yeah. So anyway, that's a side story that I'll tell you another time. But I didn't speak to Rudy for five or six years until my big confrontation with Vince in 20, 2006. The next morning, Rudy calls me at like seven in the morning and he's crying. And he goes, Vince Bugliosi started calling me in the middle of the night. And this morning he wants me to sign these papers <laughs> saying that I lied to you. Everything that I told you was a lie. And he's threatening me. He's scaring me. And he goes, I, he goes, I'm so sorry we fell out, Tom. I love you so much. I've missed you so much. Aww. I will do anything I can to help you. Will you take me to dinner? <laughs> So he and I became friends again, and he defied Vince. He wouldn't sign the papers. And, wow. and then And then I found out from him, he said, Vince told me that he was going to accuse you of uh, raping little boys. <gasps> and I'm Jesus. Like, I go, how? Where would he get that idea? And Rudy goes, well, he might have gotten it from me. I go, what did you tell what? him? <laughs> he goes, I told him... You know, three or four years ago when he was monitoring you, he was asking all these personal questions about you. And I said you were dating a young guy. (laughs) That was Brian Vo, my Vietnamese boyfriend for like three years. He was 29 and I was like 43. Right. Right. Not like a a young boy. Yeah, a young guy. And and Rudy said, Vince knew that, you know. But what he was doing was he was creating something yeah. and he was going to say Rudy was, he wanted Rudy to write that on paper too. Rudy said, I never gave him any impression that it was anybody under the age of like 25. It was like a, a perfectly proper, it was just a younger guy. And that's how Vince worked. And he was going to try to He found something me. and he wanted to like, yeah. So with the mistress, he accused her of trying to blackmail him for money because of the fee he charged her. With the milkman, he accused him of stealing. You know, they're citizens. They're not, you know, and he's this big powerful guy. Yeah. So usually if he weren't so crazy, people would give him the benefit of the doubt and think that maybe he the milkman did steal $300. Yeah. So right. That was his modus operandi when his back was against the wall. He was capable of anything. Well, I feel like we're going to never stop talking about this. I'm like honestly riveted by this guy's life right now. Yeah. It's so wild. But yeah. I mean, we'd love to have you come back on again. Yeah, I guess maybe two. one like Last question. Was there anybody that you wanted to interview that you didn't, weren't able to get oh to? Oh, my God, yeah. Like a ton, yeah. Well, I, I know mean, you've mentioned Candace Bergen. Was well, Candace Bergen one. was important, but I know even if I got her, she wouldn't she'd be she wasn't cold say as much, ice yeah. princess. Linda Kasabian, I would have given my left nut yeah. to interview. I tried so hard. She was a warm woman who got immunity, and Vince gave her a script. She lied mm, about yeah. everything. and. She, she drove the killers to the houses both nights. She didn't kill anyone, but she brought them yeah. there and took them away. And she's never told her story told truthfully. Her and yeah. they all went to prison with death sentences and she got off scot-free. Right. I spent about two weeks in Tacoma, Washington, which is a you probably don't have listeners in Tacoma, or maybe you maybe do. Maybe, yeah, we love them. Well, they're probably self-aware. What a depressing, horrible place that is. <laughs> it's so gray and rainy and wet, and she lives there, Linda, and I stalked her and couldn't get past her kid, Lady Dinah. Her kids have all been in and out of prison for being, like, running meth labs, and the daughter's known in 
as Lady Dynamite because she dynamited um, the house. She dynamite, I think, like when she was fighting with other dealers, she dynamited their drug uh, labs or something. So they're, they're, they had all these guns. Linda was arrested a ton. She didn't become a good girl after this. No. Yeah. She's, so uh, yeah. She wouldn't talk to me, and I had to deal with Lady Dynamite and her crazy friends who threatened me. <laughs> For two weeks, and I was living in the worst hotel, and it rained every single day. And it was like right when I was really running out of money, and they were threatening right. to pull the plug. I think on the it's boat. more about your life than Tacoma, Tom. No. Yeah, that's true. Exactly. Right. You know that the danger of being interviewed by someone you know. Everywhere I went, there was that gloom, that Um Okay, let's get. I first of all, you have to follow Tom on his social media pages for the books because he puts up a lot of good pictures and, and audio from the interview and audio. Yeah. yeah. So you can follow on Instagram. What's the Instagram? Do you know? Chaos the book. Chaos the book. There's a Facebook page. And the Facebook page is called. Um, it's the title of the book. The exact title. So Chaos Charles Manson, the CIA, and the secret history of the '60s. We'll yeah. probably post links to everything. Yeah. As oh, well. that'd be great. Yeah. yeah. And then the book comes out tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, and if anybody wants to go to the event at the uh, Susan Moss Theater, I'm being interviewed by Alex Cohn, who's a Spectrum One newswoman who used to be on NPR, and my collaborator, Dan Pipenbring, who who's really cool and funny, and if I start getting uncomfortable and people are asking me stuff I don't want to talk about, all I have to do is turn to Dan and say, so Dan, tell him about Prince. <laughs> Dan spent like six months with Prince until he died writing his memoir. Oh, wow. really? Yeah. Oh, shit. Traveling. Wow. And, uh, his book comes out in October with Prince. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, so that's at the Susan Moss Theater in Santa Monica at 8 o'clock Wednesday night. You can get tickets if you go to... Live L Live LA. Live LA talks. Yeah. Uh, you posted on your Facebook page probably. And right? I did. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the links are on the there. Facebook page. We'll post links to all the social media and to the mm. book. And then I guess the book can just be gotten anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> anywhere yeah. books are sold. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. exciting. Yeah. Congratulations on Thank the you. book. Really excited. Yeah. I really I just wanted to say I love the cover of the book. I know book the design of the book is amazing. We're it looks so retro and I love that. Yeah. We're, it, yeah. We're very happy with it because we fought. There were like five or six before it and they all had Manson's face on it. No, this no, is this so is perfect. cool yeah, looking. It looks cool. It's, I like yeah. seeing it out. Like I do too. Yeah. It's a great yeah. looking book. Okay, cool. Well, thank you. Tom, that was yeah, amazing. thank you so much for coming. Can I say hi to my 90 year th- three year old mom who's getting up at seven in the morning tomorrow to go to Barnes and Noble? Oh, and yeah. yeah, I'm joking, she doesn't know what a podcast <laughs> is. <laughs> I thought that would make me sound charming. Oh, you're charming, yeah. <laughs> we'll definitely uh, have you back on to talk about, yeah, other, other stuff. stuff oh, too. we want the Diane Link letter, we'll have you back on for yeah. it. Yeah, I got a yeah. ream of information. <laughs> Bring your files. Please bring files. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye.